Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and joining me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, have you sufficiently recovered from E3 yet? Have you sufficiently recovered from the Toronto Raptors' victory parade? Well, there was some incidents on Monday, but uh, yes, I think so. Were you partying all night like a party cat? <laughs> no, there were two, mini- two million people downtown. That, that stuff's crazy. I, I ain't having a piece of that. No, thank you. I'm old. Man, I want to know what that's like just once in my life. It'll happen. I, I believe in, in you and your, your teams of choice, Cat. I've always been here for the various San Francisco championships. Like when the Giants won the, uh, the World Series those three times, that was kind of fun to celebrate with everybody mm-hmm. uh, when the Warriors were winning those championships and such. like I, It's not like I haven't seen championships happening close up or, or anything, but I've always been kind of an observer rather than a participant. Right, of course. Yeah, they're, they're not your teams technically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is the saddest thing I'm ever going to admit. Sometimes I rewatch the old 1987 and 1991 championship videos for the Minnesota Twins just to know what it felt like. Ah, <laughs> I guess you weren't into like sports back then, so you don't really remember so much. I remember the 91 Twins and Kirby's walk off and whatnot and the victory parade, but also I was like eight. <laughs> yeah, so your parents weren't taking you drinking downtown. No, in fact, my parents sent me to bed early, like terrible oh my God. parents. That's terrible. Oh, I, I'm very sorry for you. I hope you called protective agency. Seriously, who does that? <laughs> that is pretty bad. That's like sending your kid to bed early, like during the moon landing or something. Like I woke up the next morning and my dad came in and said, they won the World Series. Great, dad. I wasn't there. <laughs> Do you, were your parents like fans of baseball? Yeah, they've been fans of baseball my entire life. Oh, man, when my mom got involved with the Blue Jays, like, when during the World Series, she forgot that time even existed, so we got to stay up late, like, the whole time. Ah, you're so lucky. See? There you go. You were, you're, you're the winner over me. But, okay, some things that we're going to talk about this week, I'm going to continue. I've got a Final Fantasy VII update, Nadia. Yay. We're going to talk about Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which is RPG-ish, like, uh, yeah, it passes. It passes you know. muster. And we're going to talk about the latest entry in our console RPG quest, the PC Engine, also known as the TurboGrafx-16. What amazing RPGs came out on this particular console, Nadia? Not many. It was a a cute little system, though. I'm still kind of mad that we didn't get the name PC Engine, even though it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then again, it makes better sense in TurboGrafx. Do you not like the very late 80s? Name Turbo Graphics 16 with an X at the end of it. And the giant black plastic shell that has like, you know, maybe a quarter of it taken up by circuitry. Hey, I gotta say that the name did its job. It, I mean, I knew that it was a 16-bit console and that it must have been powerful because Turbo Graphics. The X means the extra graphics. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot, Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Nadia, what was our most recent newsletter about? Our most recent newsletter was about uh, the Pokemon Sword and Shield controversy, which is probably never going to go away. But I wanted to address the fact that while I do understand why people are upset, and I do think they have a reason to be upset, I feel like the attacks against Game Freak calling them, like, lazy or, like, you know, or 
inviting these crazy ass conspiracies about how Nintendo's ruining them or they're ruining Nintendo or whatever. Uh, just in particular, the laziness uh, accusations do not sit well with me at all. Uh, there's rarely such a thing as a lazy game developer to begin with, and uh, Game Freak is not a lazy developer any by any stretch of the imagination. No, game developers work their asses off. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, every time people are like, oh, those are lazy developers, I almost guarantee that those developers thought of everything you thought of, had dozens of meetings about it, and ultimately came out going, well, it's not feasible for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, and also this reason. We wish that we could do it, but mm-hmm. we can't. We have to make a very calculated sacrifice. Exactly. And um, I really do hope and kind of maybe even envision in the future that we will have the full national decks in Gala region someday. But um, I feel like if, with all the talk we're having about how important it is for developers to have more of a work-life balance these days. I can't exactly turn around and, and like look at Game Freak and say, hey, how dare you not put all 50 billion Pokemon into this new game? Yeah, well, I'm broadly uh, on the side of the people who are upset about this whole thing. It has a name now, and that's how you know that this conversation has got toxic. It's called <laughs> Dexit. Yeah, when you told me that, you were telling me, oh, you know, can you research Dexit? I'm like, oh, what the hell is Dexit? And I was like, oh my god, you gotta be kidding me. Yep, it definitely has a name now. And uh, this is one of those situations where I, like I said, I was really upset when this information came to light. And I was like, well, that kind of sucks. But now I'm like kind of just actively annoyed with it because... People have freaked out to a degree that it is starting to get a little bit ridiculous, and I kind of want people to calm the hell down. Yeah, like, I mean, I saw people uh, uh, trashing uh, Joe, a.k.a. Cerebi, who runs Cerebi.net, calling him, like, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to this fandom because he wouldn't take a, like, for them, a, a very definitive, solid side against Game Freak for their decision, and he was like... I'm upset like you guys, but really, calm down. And of course, Cerebi.net um, is the very, very old Pokemon site I profiled on US Gamer. I have a great deal of respect for that site, what is done with that site, because uh, it's all being run on Joe's like spare time. And the mm-hmm. fact that people are just like attacking him because he's not angry enough, supposedly, is just... Come on, guys, everyone just take a step back. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. Let's just, you know, keep in mind this is Pokemon... <laughs> It's a little, it's not quite as important as other things going on. Yeah, I think there's plenty of room for criticism. I think where I draw the line is actively attacking developers, uh, sending them hate mail and whatnot. That's completely uncalled for. I think you can sit and explain why exactly you're not happy with a particular decision without getting personal. Yes, and I, like I said, I totally understand why people are a little bit upset because, um... I'm not a competitive battler myself, but a great deal of people are. And there's a whole lot of balance and data and and stuff that people are very invested in. And to have that just kind of have a, a wrench thrown into all of that, it, you know, it's a, it's a little bit uh, uh, demoralizing. It's kind of like how we could kind of understand why people were upset about Diablo Telephone when, you know, other people were like, oh, why are you being so, why are you so angry about it? No, I understand why you're upset. Just, you know, don't go around attacking people. Okay, Nadia, continuing onward, I have a Final Fantasy VII update. 
Where are you? Okay, so the last time we talked, I was in Calm, and we were having our big old flashback to when Sephiroth went crazy. Right. <laughs> the crazy Sephiroth show. So after that whole thing, I had no idea where to go. Really? Yeah, like I was kind of asking around, but I didn't get a lot of hints as to where to go. So I kind of just started heading south, I guess, trying to figure <laughs> out what I was supposed to do. And I had totally forgotten that what you're supposed to do is cross the marsh. Yes, you got to find, you got to go to Chocobo's, uh, the Chocobo farm and talk to Billy and get a Chocobo. Yeah, I got a Chocobo lure. I didn't catch a Chocobo. And I crossed the marsh, and I saw a little shadow of the giant snake monster that was trying to eat me, like a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, it'll catch you. And it's a very effective device, again, showing, rather than telling about Sephiroth's power, because you're dealing with this giant snake monster that's going to completely kill you, and then you show up at the cave that gets you through the mountains, and you see, like, the bloody corpse of this snake monster, uh on a pike yes sitting there outside the cave entrance and you know that was sephiroth and you're like okay <laughs> it's like well that's a guy we're gonna have to fight in the future isn't it it was a really effective device as well like the lightning is flashing in the background yeah. and everybody's just kind of looking at it briefly <laughs> it's uh, like it was oh crap <laughs> great visual storytelling i gotta say in final fantasy 7 there is um, a lot of great visual storytelling in that game. We talked a little bit about uh, some of that last episode, um, and I actually mentioned the green dragon fight and how that's like just like a great setup for demonstrating Sephiroth's power, and you just mentioned another great setup. And kind of stemming into that, I did also mention how the green dragon gave us like our first real taste of a, a huge enemy, which was something we didn't see in sprite-based games back in the day. And the snake enemy, who was actually called uh, the Midgar Zolom, I think is a mistranslation of the World Serpent. Uh, He's another enemy that just just towers over you. Uh, And even if you manage to get, like, a few blows on him, he'll just, like, kind of rear up and make your party that much smaller and more insignificant and then just blow you away with, like, a, a, a nuke spell, basically. So, yeah, it's just... I do appreciate how Square Enix clearly knew what they were doing with the hardware they were using and i could kind of understand why they said yeah the n64 isn't going to be any good for our purposes so i went into the the myth the mithril mines and one of the main contra one of the main criticisms of final fantasy 7 is that its dungeons are kind of a letdown now the shinra headquarters as dungeons go i think was actually pretty good ultimately uh-huh. Uh, well executed, kind of uh, non traditional in the way that it was handled. There, were, there were some puzzles, right? Some like pretty solid battles. It told a story. It was visually interesting. It was pretty much everything I want out of a dungeon, right? Yeah. Whereas Mithril Mines is kind of endemic of what you often get with Final Fantasy VII. It's a cave. <laughs> it's a it's a cave. It's quite short. Um, I do like the music there. I think the music is really nice combined with the kind of the, the crystal visuals they have in there. But yes, it's short. And that's where you uh, you meet the Turks there, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you meet the Turks very quickly and their new recruit, Elena is her name? Elena, uh, yeah. Elena, yeah. Something like that. And she's not very good at her job. She's a little too enthusiastic. 
Yeah, I always kind of wondered a bit about her because the Turks are supposed to be like these, you know, hardcore assassins and, and what have you. And Alina is like constantly falling over herself. <clears throat> and the the Turks are hilarious because they just show up randomly, but they don't really do anything. Like, you're expecting to have a fight with the Turks in the Mithril Mine and you don't have that at all. They just kind of threaten you and yeah. also tell you where Sephiroth is going. Yeah, I do like how they just don't give a damn. Uh, it's not like, they're not like regular villains who are like, oh, I, you know, just be a waste of my time to fight you right now or, or you know, bluffing or whatever. But uh, no, they just can't be bothered. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care about you. They don't even care that much about Shinra. They just care about themselves. And then you get to Junon, which is like an iconic location. Mm-hmm. It has probably the biggest example of uh, Chekhov's gun I've ever seen. <laughs> It's quite a literal one, isn't it? It's huge. It's built into a cliff. And you know that sucker's going to fire at least once. Yes. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, how did he do with the dolphin? I hate that dolphin. Oh, I got it on my first try. Oh, did you now? Great. Yeah. Good job. Good for Damn me, dolphin. right? <laughs> good for you. I had to look up, okay, where the hell do I have to go exactly to get this dolphin to throw me in the right position so that I can get on with my life? So Junon itself, when I played this game originally, I do not remember the music being annoying. Yes. Is um is that where they Yeah, okay, so Rufus is uh being inaugurated there, right? Like it's uh and they have this like cheery ass, like marching music that's awful. Yes. That yes. just plays on loop forever. It never stops. And you it have never to never like, stops. You have to march in time to it with that one sequence which I always screw up. <laughs> So a few things. I love the visual design of Junon. It has yes. this curiously Eastern European look to it. Yeah, that's. A, I never thought about that, but you're right. It does have that kind of the cement sort of tenements going on, and is it is gloomy in that very worker and parasite way. Yes. <laughs> and it has uh, this extremely martial marches and everything, which yes. is weird because, okay, Shinra's a corporation, uh-huh. but it's also like Soviet Russia. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah, it's like kind of, um, it supposedly provides for the people, so you kind of have the the totalitarian government slash corporation going on, don't you? Yeah, I guess that's the logical extreme of corporate fascism, where you have the CEO in chief. Yeah, ooh, man, that's depressing. In WALL-E, I think that the, the ruler of the world or the ruler of the country was identified as a national CEO or something to that effect. Right. He was the, um, he was also the CEO of the, the Walmart stand in for that, for the the country, if not the world. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen Walmart. Yeah. They run everything. Yes. It's interesting. The, the parallels between WALL-E and Final Fantasy (laughs) seven. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Like strong echo themes and things like that. Yeah, the world being kind of a a, a trash heap and going downhill quickly. (laughs) And it's totally blaming it on corporations? Yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, man, there's so many mini-games in this game, so you have to do a little marching mini-game in this one. Yes. Do you think they'll keep that in Remake? I don't know. (laughs) I know that every time I do it, I get a grenade because I'm terrible at it. And that's actually one of the... it is actually one of the funniest lines in a game that does not have good translation, <laughs> where the announcer who's kind of proceeding over the parade says, what the hell is that? Someone send that soldier a bomb, and I got an actual grenade. I know, right? I mean, yes. I almost feel like that wouldn't fly today. 
Probably not, but it was great. When I look at these minigames, I feel like the developers were a little insecure about it being turn-based and everything, and were frantically trying to diversify as much as possible. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on in the PlayStation era, um, especially since it's like, hey, we want everyone to love this game, so uh, it's not just an RPG. It's an RPG and a breathe into this little girl's lung simulator. Oh, God, I hated that. <laughs> it was so bad. Okay, first of all, that's not CPR. That was some kind of rescue breathing. And also, that's not how you do it. Yeah. Oh, are you trained? Yes, I am trained in that. Actually, I don't think you do rescue breathing anymore. That's not necessarily a thing. I know that they've also changed CPR since I was last trained in it. But yeah, that's not how you do CPR. It's not just taking a giant deep breath and then breathing into their lungs or whatever. Apparently you saved her <laughs> in Final Fantasy World. That's hey, what you CPR works. cat. Yeah, exactly. it worked. Good enough. You're alive, aren't you? So after this entire sequence in which you're creeping around Junon and eventually stowing away on a boat, and frankly, this sequence took a little too long. I randomly encouraged the encounter the Turks in a bar. I like that. Like yes. I said, I love that they just pop up places. They they, they, they pop in, in that bar, and I remember once seeing uh, a screenshot, uh, a preview screenshot of that bar, and thinking it looked so good, and it did actually. I think it still <laughs> looks pretty awesome. And then I got on a boat, and I was heading across the ocean to Costa del Sol, a different continent, because I guess there were rumors that Sephiroth was going over to that continent as well. Yeah. Yeah. They're chasing him. Yeah. Uh, I have to keep reminding myself why exactly we're chasing Sephiroth. Because <laughs> he's a bastard, I guess. Well, uh, Cloud lays it out. He says that Cloud has a personal connection. He's alive. Cloud has to find him. And as for Sephiroth's motives, he's trying to access the promised land so that he can rule the world, question mark. And I guess Shinra's mad because they kind of kill he kind of killed their president. And also he is their creation run amok. Yeah, so I understand why both sides are, are involved. And actually, um, one thing I do like about uh, the flashback with Cloud and Sephiroth is how they have that, that final scene where, you know, Sephiroth and Cloud are staring each other down. And Cloud's like, oh, that's it. That's all I remember. And Barrett loses his shit because he's like, what are you talking about? How can you just end it there? You get on the boat and Heidegger sucks. Oh, he does. And he's, I, I mentioned how they made him like kind of like less, uh, I guess, fat in the uh, remake. He's um has more belt buckles too. But what else do you, what else would you expect? He's like a cross between Rasputin and Herman Goering. Rasputin, that's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, because he has a big black beard and the kind of bloodshot yes. eyes and everything. But he's like Herman Gehring in that he's enormously fat and incompetent. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of incompetence going on in the upper uh, upper rings of uh, Shinra. I've noticed. Herman Gehring's a fascinating character, by the way. If you ever study that history, he was a World War One fighter ace who joined the Nazi Party like relatively early on, but he had a painkiller addiction which made him increasingly erratic. And he was given toward wearing extremely fancy uniforms covered in tons of medals uh, that would kind of show how fat he was. He had like, he had special like white uniforms made for him and he loved hunting. He had this estate in the German countryside, uh, I think called, I forget what it was called, but it had a very medieval name and he would always ride out and go hunting from it. Boar hunting, that was his thing. And also he was fat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he sounds like a charmer uh anyway uh, heidegger is a lot like him 
right down to the fact that he was incompetent. Hermann Goering probably lost the war for the Nazis because he was so bad at running the Luftwaffe. It wasn't even funny. But uh, when it comes to Heidegger, he not only allows the entire group onto the boat, including Red 13, who's wearing a uniform and just kind of like wiggling around with his tail visible and all that. And he can't walk on two legs. Again, I hope this is in the game. So do I. I do want to see two-legged Red 13, especially since Red 13, like, uh, before he reveals that his tail's hanging out like an idiot, he, like, gives you some, like, glib, you know, remark about how humans are, like, so judgmental and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he turns around, his his literal ass is hanging out of his pants. (laughs) Uh, In Bojack Horseman, there's a weird character who's clearly three little kids standing on top of one another wearing a trench coat and a fedora. (laughs) And uh, one of the main characters um, is in love with this kid who is standing on two other kids in a trench coat. And nobody's seen. And the joke is that nobody seems to realize that this is, you know, it's just a kid. <laughs> Getting back to Final Fantasy VII. So you're there, and Sephiroth uh-huh. is there with Genova. Like, nobody notices yeah. this. And it's not a big ship either, it's, it's pretty small. And then when you're, everybody dies, like Sephiroth kills everybody, and you fight Genova for the first time, which, by the way, the music there is outstanding. Oh, I love the Genova theme. Holy crap. I just, if, if, if I would just, like, turn that up all the way on my car and just, like, pour it out the windows. The battle, mu- the music in Final Fantasy VII is so up and down. There are it times is. where it's gorgeous and atmospheric and melancholy and it sets the mood perfectly. And then there are times where it's just annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, I think part of the problem is just that it's MIDI instead of like orchestrated. The, these quote unquote instruments just grate on you in, in, instead of like really sounding good. There's this really great moment in what, so okay, you come out of the, the hold and you see that everybody is dead, and Sephiroth has clearly been at work on this boat, right? Right. And it's playing the the creepy music, and then there's this great little sting with the drums where it's like, don't, 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 don't. Yeah. Da-da-da. Right? And that sounds like real instruments. It doesn't just sound MIDI. And I no, was you're like, right. oh, this yeah. is really good. No, you're right, because uh, sometimes it does actually sound like uh, actual instruments. Like uh, when they go full bore on Eris's theme, that sounds really beautiful. It sounds you know, nearly orchestrated. But uh, then they have the, the other Eris's theme, which is, I guess, their lesser Eris theme, where they, it, it really does sound a lot more midi-ish and unimpressive. <laughs> also, the battle system. Okay, so now I have summons. I got Yay! Shiva and Ifrit, and I've got some more abilities. And the battle system doesn't feel as one-dimensional as it did before. I'm spending a little more time thinking about how I want to arrange my materia and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it still feels a little repetitive. Yeah, um, I, I do admit that once you kind of get more materia, balancing that materia and balancing your stats as well becomes a little bit more of a challenge, especially with uh, some of the higher level summons, which will... Yes, they'll give you a nice boost in your magic points, but they will give you, they will take off a significant chunk of your hit points. So you can't exactly stack yourself with like all the high level summons without really crippling yourself. You, you don't even really realize that because the information there is, is on there on the screen, mm-hmm. but it's not, ob- it's not obvious. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, um, 
yeah, it's definitely not like that clear. But uh, as you, it's not something I realized when I played the game as a youngster for the first time around. But as I did subsequent playthroughs, I got more paranoid about balancing my party and balancing my materia. Also, the boss battles are all extremely straightforward and fairly easy. So it's just yes. a matter of keep your health up, uh, bat the uh, enemy in, over the head until they're dead. <laughs> yeah, basically. And uh, once you get the summons, that gets a lot easier as well. Yeah. My favorite kind of battle system is the one in which during a regular battle, you can get through those extremely quickly, but it's kind of a battle of attrition. And then when you get uh-huh. to higher level, more complicated battles, that's when you bring out your full bag of tricks, right? And it feels right, like it yeah. goes to another level. Uh, I think a great example of risk reward, like of, of this concept, I suppose, is the Dragon Quest series in general, where yes. against regular enemies, you can get through them really fast just with uh, powerful spells. But when you get to a boss, uh, finding out what their weakness is, and then also uh buffing that buffing your party as much as possible uh using mm-hmm. various uh spells that give you a hand understanding party composition this makes the battles a lot more tactical and a lot more interesting than when you get out of final fantasy 7 yeah uh, i actually find that playing trails of cold steel uh that's very much the same thing where the um the regular battles are they're challenging enough but the the boss battles uh if if you don't know what you're doing and if you don't have your your party balanced right you can uh, you can lose quite quickly yeah so while i enjoy final fantasy 7 uh and i especially like the story for the most part and the characters and mm-hmm. various and how crazy it can be at times the battle yes. system is uh, the gameplay itself can be a little bit of a low point but yeah i guess they were really kind of like just for their first playstation game their first like you know real theatric game they wanted to really focus on big things like the story and the the presentation and you just kind of go with what they knew for the battle system. And then you get into the uh, the port at Costa del Sol. Is that what it's called? Costa del Sol, yes. The resort town. You're at a randomly in a resort town, which, I don't know, could be something out of Hawaii or something like that. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've ever visited uh, the Dominican Republic, but it reminds me very much oh. of that. I've been to the Bahamas. Yeah, it reminds me oh, of cool. that. Yeah. But, I mean, you forget about Rufus and Heidegger while you're fighting Genova. You get off the boat, and Rufus and Heidegger step off, and Rufus is like, you really screwed up this time, Heidegger. <laughs> you screwed it up. And Heidegger is just sitting here, belly laughing, so oh, I apologize. And Rufus is like, is that really, just seriously? Seriously? <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, as I recall, Rufus uh, gets on a, a helicopter to wherever, and he leaves Heidegger behind, and Heidegger just chases some rando into the water because he's yeah. so pissed off. Yeah, the kind of person who really sucks at their job and just takes it out on their subordinates. Not fun. Anyway, I got to Corel, which is, I guess, uh, Barrett's hometown, which has mm-hmm. been destroyed by some mysterious accident, but the game isn't really going into it at the moment. And I saw a big old sign for the Golden Saucer, so I guess that's where I'm headed next. I just don't understand why North Corral, which is like this really, like, you know, poverty-stricken town, uh, you know, shanties everywhere, it has this single entrance to the Gold Saucer. So the only way you're going to get to the Gold Saucer is if you walk through this 
poverty-stricken town, which there's no other, there's not too many other towns like anywhere else. So it's not like people are like coming in and and, like you know uh, visiting through visiting Gold Saucer through the through um, North Corral, but they're just that's the only ropeway. That's the only way you're getting up there, and it's just made no sense. Like why is it there? (laughs) There's no no other towns. Like this just doesn't make any sense. A lot of the geography in Final Fantasy VII doesn't make sense. Or that we already touched on how weird it is that there are just a lot of little towns dotting uh, the landscape, but basically no roads or no infrastructure to speak of in this high-tech world. Yeah, I guess that's uh, you had to do with, the, with what you could with the PlayStation. And not only that, but the how the, the towns can really vary. Like, Costa del Sol is right near Corel, and yes. it's effectively... Like having an island resort town right next to West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, because you got the the kind of the coal mining town and the uh, the the tropical town. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it's a little jarring in true Final Fantasy fashion. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, you like take two steps and suddenly you're in like you're going from like you know North America to Africa or something. So parting shot. I really like the overworld. They're just the. Uh, what part of it the expansiveness the music all of it all of it but Mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of indiana jones where they have the map and it's kind of tracing out the path to where you're going next it oh yeah gives the story a sense of scope that i feel a lot of later jrpgs kind of lose in dropping the world map i feel like i am actually on a globetrotting adventure yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense because, as you say, it's like you've already taken a boat from one continent to the next, and you know, as I recall, to get to Corel, you have to kind of climb through this like abandoned uh, mine to to get over the mountains, and yeah, you you've got like some interesting locales you'll be visiting pretty soon. And Final Fantasy VII does scope really well. Like the moment mm-hmm. when you climb up and you see the high wind for the first time is really cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I saw somebody say on Twitter recently, and I agree with them. They said, I miss when JRPGs were put you in this massive op- this massive world that you had to explore, and are there all these mysterious things going on and that you didn't really mm-hmm. necessarily understand, and you were just kind of trying to unravel this really intriguing mystery while fighting f- forces bigger than yourself, whether supernatural or evil governments or evil religions. Yeah, uh, that's one thing I do miss about overworld maps is how you always had those little hidden spots that were always a lot of fun to find. That's one reason why I love Breath of Fire 3 so much, because it has a lot of those, you know, those little hidden areas on, on world maps. And uh, those are always just nice diversions. All right, that's my Final Fantasy VII report. Next time, I will probably be in the Golden Saucer. <laughs> Cranking yes, right along, will. according to my game clock, I'm only about seven hours in. So this game's really going fast. Yeah, and uh, you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're making good time. Okay, Nadia, before we continue on to the console RPG quest, you're playing Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. What are your thoughts? It's, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I think it's uh, a little janky, to be fair, because uh, there's already been reports about one kind of massive bug where, unfortunately, early adopters got their game, and then uh, Artplay came out with a patch that fixed a lot of things sure it was a, it was a massive day one patch basically the usual except it broke the game for people who already started because uh it did something about like something about opening up treasure chests 
and not having any items in them anymore. So all these like items that you needed to progress in the story are just not there anymore. So you either have to start over again, which kind of sucks with a Metroidvania game because those aren't short, or hopefully wait until art play uh, comes out with something like some some kind of a fix. But I don't know what the story is with that. Um, other than that, I'm actually enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, I think it feels really good to have a an actual Igovania game again. You know, a game that feels the way that Symphony of the Night does, which it largely does, and has that, like, unapologetically cheesy goth theme going on, which there are, of course, countless Metroidvanias out there by now, but not too many of them really revisit that Symphony of the Night castle structure. One thing I, I just adore about Symphony of the Night is how... Dracula's castle is seriously its own world like it goes just not just like above the clouds but just fathoms below the surface and I haven't finished Bloodstained by any means yet but it's looking like that's kind of the same business going on here like I already found the an underground cavern of course there's an underground cavern in in Symphony and it it goes much lower than that but it feels familiar but not in a bad way so I'm, I'm having fun with it that's good I think the fact that people like it and generally think it's pretty good is a giant upset, actually, because based on the development time, what people had been saying was happening behind the scenes, rumors of mm-hmm. troubles in that regard, uh, the need to bring in WayForward uh, at the last minute for additional policy polishing and whatnot, it seemed to have all of the makings of a complete mess. I wasn't really excited about the game because uh, I did play it at at, um, PAX East, as you know, and I did actually play the PC version of the game, and I I enjoyed it, Uh, but just what a mess the Switch port was at the time, which we we still don't know how the Switch port is going to play at the time of this recording. It could still be a mess, but, you know, for I've heard that they are working very hard to optimize it, so... Godspeed with that, because I would actually love to be playing this on my Switch, but not if it runs like crap. It sounds like, though, they're putting a lot of work into making sure that it's polished up and ready to go on Switch. So, yeah, and I'm just glad to have a good game from Igarashi coming out. It's a a shame that Shenmue 3 doesn't look to be following the same footsteps. Uh, There are people, the defenders, the, the best defense that people have been able to muster for it basically is... Well, what? I mean, it's like they airlifted a Dreamcast game onto the PlayStation 4. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Some people are really into that. I was never a Shenmue fan, so I can't speak for myself. Yeah, no, I I wasn't much of a Shenmue fan either. I do find the fact that it's kind of like a game straight out of 1999, but in the present day, a little bit fascinating. And Mm -hmm. I don't think a game being quote-unquote old is bad in and of itself. Like, people were taking shots at Crackdown 3 for not being that different from the original Crackdown. So so the hell what? Crackdown 1 was really good. (laughs) I think it's also like, the thing that makes me curious about Shenmue 3 is uh, Metroidvania still have a lot of appeal. The the formula still works very well. Uh, Like I said, it's nice to play a a gothic sort of uh, Metroidvania again. Uh, but Shenmue, it feels like, okay, if I have time for that kind of game, I'm just going to go play Yakuza because... It basically takes Shenmue and really improves on it, on a formula. But Shenmue is more of a kung fu story. It's got this crazy legend, uh, this crazy storyline that spans multiple entries. And 
you just don't see games like that anymore, right? That's true. You really don't, especially since uh, if you read uh, on uh, our site, we had a, an interview uh, with uh, Yu Suzuki who said, uh, basically Shenmue 3, once it's done, it will be we, we will be through 40% of the story, <laughs> of the overarching story. It's never going to end. We're going to be playing Shenmue till we're dead. No, what's going to happen first? Shenmue finishes or uh, A Song of Ice and Fire finishes? Place your bets. Some years ago, Yu Suzuki did a classic game postmortem of Shenmue, and Mm -hmm. he showed the concept art from every version, every game, and it goes like eight entries deep. It looked really epic and cool. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about this game when it was like uh, supposed to be a virtual fighter RPG. Yeah, and it sure looks like a virtual fighter RPG, doesn't it? Uh, it kind of has that, that blockiness to it, and uh, uh, certainly looks like uh, Akira as, as the star. Anyway, go check out Nadia's impressions of Bloodstained over on the site, and also a couple of other items of housekeeping. Uh, as I already mentioned, Evangelion is out on Netflix. You should go watch it, yes. even though it has some problems. Apparently, they changed some things in the dub that I'm not extremely happy about, like making Kaworu tell Shinji that he likes him rather than he loves him. Mm, it's a little bit different. Yeah, that is a that is a little bit different. There is actually a lot of discourse about that on Twitter right now. Um, yes. I don't know if it'll still be going on by the time this podcast posts, but probably. The Twitter perpetual motion machine is in full voice right now, so. Oh, it, it totally is. And uh, I know a lot of people are very angry about the uh, Fly Me to the Moon not being there for the end credits. I'm not surprised, because they probably would have had to pay a certain license to the Sinatra estate, and they just oh, weren't ready of, to do yeah. it. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame. It's a shame, but it's maybe the least, it's the thing that I'm least unhappy about losing. I am much yeah. more upset with them cutting apparently scenes and changing things that's not cool no that isn't that it is a little bit too it is a little bit too bad for that um i'm still gonna watch it on netflix just because of convenience like i told you on slack uh, i hadn't seen evangelion because uh anime uh tapes and dvds and what have you were just prohibitively expensive in canada for the longest time and we didn't really have cartoon network we didn't have any sort of licenses because the stations we did have did couldn't afford to pay for them so <laughs> it was like well enjoy your reruns of sonic underground kids yeah i bought a evangelion tape on a whim in when it roughly when it first came out i didn't know much of anything about anime it was the second anime like that i knew was an anime that i ever watched oh, uh, the first one was about- oh my god us so evangelion was a little bit of a change i, I bought was gonna it so- say it's a bit of a mind f right there i bought it solely on the say so of some friends who were really into anime and i had no idea what was going on but it was really <laughs> cool well by that point were you into giant robots i was not i did not get into mecha oh. properly until about 2007 oh so maybe that was kind of an an awakening of sorts even if you didn't realize it yeah well i mean the the robots were less interesting to me. Well, I mean, I guess the robot stuff was pretty cool. I, I really liked the music. I really loved the art design. It And after, uh, yeah, I'm just going to sound like humble bragging or something. After living in Japan for three years, <laughs> <laughs> I came to really appreciate the way that it captured life in Japan uh, with the, mm-hmm. the buzz of the cicadas and 
Like, I could feel it. I could feel myself in Tokyo, even though it's set in Tokyo 3 underground or whatever. And You could feel the humidity sticking to you. Oh, my God, yes. Especially since, especially in the episodes that take a primarily take place primarily outdoors. But, yeah, but I, I watched Evangelion in its entirety um, with my partner when we were in college on DVD. And also, I had a bootleg of End of, End of Evangelion for the longest time. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yep. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed Evangelion back in the day, and I was enjoying the rebuilds until Rebuild 3, which I did not like. Um, but I have the Blu-ray set that was only ever released in Japan, and I'm oh. actually pretty happy with that. See, something like that would be really handy for people who are like, okay, well, I want to watch this series, but I hear the Netflix uh, you know, version makes some compromises. What should I do? Well, can't get the Blu-ray, I guess. Yeah, that was made me mad that the Blu-ray never came over here. I was praying and praying and praying that it would eventually come over and get localized, and finally I just broke mm-hmm. down and bought it. Ah. <laughs> it's worth getting, though. It's beautiful transfer, really good, it, but only if you speak Japanese. Only if you speak Japanese, otherwise go to hell. Uh, but we wrote about the seven games that you should play after watching Evangelion on Netflix, and some of them include Final Fantasy VII, Nier Automata, and Xenogears, all favorites here. On yes, of the blood and game. very, very inspired by Evangelion. Even I know that. And so go check it out over on the site. Also, I wrote a piece about Harry Potter Wizards Unite. Yes, I got to go down to Universal Studios Hollywood and hang out at the hot Harry Potter Wizarding World, which was... I am very jealous. Yeah, well, sometimes you get to pull rank for this kind of thing. And I've, <laughs> yeah. I've never been. I had some Butterbeer. I played some Wizards Unite, and I found that it... Mm, maybe uh miss the point a little bit so you should go read why over on the site yeah that's that's a bit of a shame you're not the only person saying that unfortunately yes all right nadia it's time to continue the console rpg quest so don't go away Okay, Nadia, the latest entry in our console RPG quest. We have covered the Atari. We have covered the Famicom. We've covered the Sega Master System and the Game Gear. But we have not covered the TurboGrafx-16, also known as the PC Engine, which came out in 1987, which is about a year before the Sega Genesis. It was... Maybe the first properly 16-bit console, unless I'm totally missing something. And, I mean, Nadia, what's your experience with the TurboGrafx-16 slash PC Engine? Um, I did not have one, that was for sure. And really? Had... I'm so surprised. <laughs> this is something I referenced recently. Uh, there was just that one kid in the schoolyard who had the TurboGrafx-16, and, you know, he's always trying to convince everyone it's so much better than the NES, and... We were, like, be sitting there talking about Mario 3 and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, no, go, go on now. Yeah, go but on. have you played Bonk? It's have about you a caveman. Bonk, Bonk is so much better than Mario. No, he's not. But thank you for playing. Did people say that? No, but I'm sure they try. Sure. Kind of like how Jet Creating said, Creating straw man. Good job, Nadia. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I did not have a Turbo Graphics. No, I did not. Although I... We'll say that I used to, when I read Game Fan, that wacky, wacky magazine, they used to highlight a lot of PC Engine RPGs and adventure games that always looked very interesting to me, and I always wanted to play them. Uh, 
But of course, uh, even if you did have a Turbo Graphics, you were not getting half of what Japan had that was even remotely interesting. Yeah, most of my knowledge of the Turbo Graphics 16 slash PC Engine was through video game magazines in which it would discuss the Turbo Graphics. Much like the Sega Master System, they were definitively not in the stores that I shopped at. No, no. I, you know, I, I've seen Turbo Graphics consoles when I was young, but I, of course, I didn't buy one. I mean, they were around. I'm sure that if I went to Funkoland and said, "Hey, do you have a Turbo Graphics 16?" they probably would have had one. And I'm sure that they had them set up at, I'm sure they had at least one set up in the demo kiosk, but I didn't know anything back then. I only knew about the NES and whatnot. So uh, you would have, you would have asked for a turbo graphics and like, you know how that scene in the Simpsons where the Dr. Wolf, the dentist pulls out the braces that are for the uninsured patient. And it's just like this horrible monstrosity. (laughs) Uh, So you're saying the turbo graphics was the equivalent of having uh, a tooth going through your face or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I think that checks out. It wasn't that safe. bad. I it think was we're a good safe system. quoting that. Uh, it had, you know what? It was a good system if you were in Japan, because of course in Japan it was quite a bit more popular than it was here. Not as good as the Genesis and the Super Nintendo, though. It had an eight. No, no. D- despite being billed as a sixteen-bit system, it had an eight-bit processor. Um, it got most of its graphics from the two interlocked sixteen-bit GPUs that I had. And because of the way that it was, it lacked a lot of the cool effects that were on the Genesis and the Super Nintendo, like translucency and all of that yeah. good stuff. Maybe I think I don't think it has parallaxing. I could be wrong. No, um, if you if it's actually funny if you look at those old games, like in particular Bonk, what you get is you do get a game that has bigger sprites and it has you know more colors definitely, but. Uh, you won't get, like, fancy backgrounds or anything like that. That's something I noticed very, very strongly with Rondo of Blood, which has, not saying it has bad backgrounds, but it has a lot of levels which are just like, here's a brick wall, go to hell. <laughs> uh, it could spit out loads of sprites. That, that, that was yes. the main thing. And as a consequence, it had a lot of shoot 'em ups I would say that the PC Engine is known as a shoot 'em up machine. Yeah, um, I know that... Uh, Pat the NES Punk, he's like a, a Turbo Graphics fan forever, and he talks a lot about the the shooting games that were on that system. And yeah, there were there were quite a few, and they were actually quite good. So it's actually rather confusing because the PC Engine had a lot of skews at the time. Um, it yes. had the core graphics and the super graphics, which both updated the specs and changed a lot of things, and came out at the same time, but they were different. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, I'm really beginning to see why this thing failed, and it wasn't just because the NES already had a foothold. Well, here's the thing. It, it was successful in Japan. It even outsold the Famicom for a bit. Like, even though it had all those different damn SKUs? Yep. Um, and the SKUs changed up the, the, the processors and improved things. Uh-huh. Not always for the better. The super graphics wasn't super great. Also, there was the Turbo Express. Uh, it was codenamed mm. the Game Tank. <laughs> a good name i want the next game i want the next console to be called that i think the xbox one is basically a game tank oh it totally is i'm looking at it now it is definitely a tank that thing is a monstrosity but (laughs) the turbo express was one of many handhelds released on the coattails of the game boy in 1990 and it was maybe the least known of the era's handhelds it was Unlike the Game Boy and the Game Gear and whatnot, it was much more like the Sega Nomad in that it could take 
the cards from the TurboGrafx-16 and play them, which is actually mm-hmm. pretty cool. It had a backlit full-color screen, uh, but it also had a problem with sound failure, dead pixels, and all of that, so it wasn't super great. <laughs> Sold poorly. And it probably had surprise, a- surprise. Surprise. It probably had a problem with uh, battery life, too. Probably ate batteries like mad. Oh, God, yes. So, uh, so continuing on with the confusing skews, the PC Engine also got a CD-ROM peripheral in 1988, which was before CD-ROMs were all the rage. Yeah, that's right. That's where uh, I suspect uh, a lot of the RPGs we're talking about today, uh, several of them landed on the, the PC Engine CD. Yeah, the main benefit of the PC engine cd-rom is that it included much better soundtracks you got some really awesome soundtracks out of that thing yeah you did and you also got um i don't know if the regular pc engine was capable of these as well probably but you got those like really sort of unique anime cutscenes, which are which don't utilize a lot of colors and god knows they don't utilize a lot of animation but they're very they're very impressive for the time and i still like them because they have a very unique quality that you just did not see from any other system now or then. So the CD-ROM kept being upgraded. It got an upgrade called the Super CD-ROM with increased buffer RAM in the early 90s, and then it got another improvement in 1994 with the arcade card. But by 1994, the TurboGrafx-16 was on its last legs and was actually discontinued that year by NEC. Uh, the PC Engine Duo was released, which combined the PC Engine and the Super CD-ROM into one unit. Right. And that was perhaps the a favorite of importers who wanted to be able to right. play Rondo of Blood, which I think was the holy grail of collectors for a very long time. It's so funny to think about that now because you could literally play Rondo of Blood on pretty much anything you want. But uh, yeah, back then, Rondo of Blood was the game you would get a PC Engine for or you know, try to emulate. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Rondo Blood came out on the recent Castlevania Anniversary Collection, but it wasn't good. Here's the thing. I, I'm i okay with Rondo of Blood. I'm not a huge Rondo of Blood fan, believe it or not. I would much rather play Super Castlevania 4, and I know I have lost many listeners saying this, and I'm very sorry, except I'm not. You lost yourself I... a host, Nadia. <laughs> we can never speak again. It, it, it's not bad. It's just, yeah, it, you're right. It's on the Castlevania, is it the Legacy Collection that they had on the Yeah, it was the one that was on Symphony of the Night as well, and it had some problems. It had problems. It's it's just not the best. It, it's not the best collection at all. Uh, I think the emulation is decent, at least, but uh, I know that I think the version that most people played and this was a big deal when it happened was when it came out on the on WiiWare. That was that was pretty surprising. That was pretty great. Yeah, it coming on Virtual Console with a number of other PC Engine games was awesome, and a key reason why I will never get my, rid of my Wii U. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's actually a really good reason not to get rid of your Wii U is because uh, there's a lot of Wii WiiWare games that would die otherwise. Yeah, I also got Lords of Thunder on it. Oh wow! Yeah, Way Lords of Thunder is a really badass uh, shoot 'em up with really good. Uh, with really good music, so I mm. was I was pretty happy to have that one. There was some there was some good PC Engine games, import only gems that were released on the Wii, and I I always wish it's, it's a shame that Nintendo started out so well with the Wii in some in some respects, and their support only got worse as time went on. <laughs> yeah, it, there was a lot of potential there that just was not realized. The Switch is an incredible retro system, despite Nintendo's best efforts. 
<laughs> exactly, despite Nintendo's best efforts to screw it all up. Yep. But, okay, let's talk about the RPGs on the PC Engine. So, there aren't a lot, actually. No, unfortunately. I mentioned the big franchise on PC Engine and mentioned Rondo of Blood because I was just, I feel like you gotta mention Rondo of Blood. Yeah, and it's uh, not, well, you know, it's, it's not an RPG. Not quite RPG. It's not an RPG it's... at all. It's an action game. It's a platformer. It's, it's yeah. much more similar to the original 8-bit Castlevanias and Symphony of the Night. Yeah. And a good one, too. It's really it's a beautiful game. But, no, I would say, like much like the Master System, the PC Engine is uh, kind of known for the Ease games, though it actually got a couple of sequels. Specifically, it got one of the worst Ease games in Ease 3. Are you familiar with Ease 3, Nadia? Yes. Ease 3 was interesting because, uh, number one, it was on the SNES, but I don't think too many people played it because it wasn't very good. Uh, most of the problems that people have with it, it is, it, it is a side-scroller, as opposed to the usual kind of top-down adventure. But it's very much more like, um, I guess, Adventure of Link, which is also a, a 2D game that has you swinging your sword. But um, good soundtrack, though. A lot of games like E3 on the PC Engine, I might add. Popful Mail mm-hmm. is another one. Uh, that was on one? the Sega CD, too. Yeah, Nihon Falcom seems to be one of the only major PC RPG developers to really enjoy working on the PC Engine, which I think is kind of interesting, actually, because, I mean, the PC Engine was successful in Japan. You would think that there would be more games from the heavyweights over there, like Capcom and Konami and yeah. Square, Enix. That is actually interesting, because I feel like you had you're right you had those developers who really carved out a niche for themselves on that system and i guess because since we were just talking about how the turbo graphics pc engine just wasn't as powerful as i guess the super nintendo or the genesis uh porting the games back to the pc engine couldn't have been easy uh, i mean a lot of these games that were that we're talking about they uh they look fine and some of them have those, like I said, those really fun, impressive anime scenes. But um, when you look at them, their regular graphics, they kind of look very simple in, in many ways. They they don't have the the visual flair of, of like Final Fantasy VI or even Fantasy Star Four. Oh, Papa Mail looks good. You're right. Papa Mail does look kind of cute and good. There are some games that have some really nice anime uh, cutscenes, but uh, for the most part, you are correct. Uh, my th- my theory is much like the Sega Master System. I it ran afoul of Nintendo's monopolistic ways, and yeah, <laughs> that's a Nintendo no no. Yeah, because it came out in 1988, which was very much the height of the Famicom's power. Right, so, right. So they had very strong ironclad exclusive licensing deals. Nintendo would punish you if you made games for any other console. So. Uh, yeah, and then the Genesis came out. And while the Genesis wasn't as popular in, in uh, Japan, it was much more popular in North America, which kind of uh-huh. evened it out. And it seems like developers decided when they were picking a horse, they ultimately went with that one because the Genesis had maybe a lot more of a foothold around the world mm-hmm. than the PC right. Engine did. Right, because Genesis also had uh, Europe and the UK. Yes, exactly. And the Genesis also benefited from the fact that the Sega itself was an outstanding game developer, and they were able to make games like Fantasy Star and Shining Force for it, whereas NEC had Bonk. <laughs> and I don't mean to rag on Bonk here. Bonk no, I'm going to keep cute. ragging on Bonk. Cute, Bonk but... sucked. <laughs> oh no, poor Bonk. Yeah, what screw, about Zonk? Screw Bonk. Zonk, Air Zonk, <laughs> they're all bad. 
<laughs> they can all go in the pit. Yeah, I mean, he was the, the ghetto mascot next to Sonic and Mario. <laughs> the, always that, like, kind of floating third mascot, which, like, you know, you have Mario and you have Sonic and you have that, everyone kind of had that third mascot. They always wanted to be the third, but they never could manage it. Yeah, it's Mario and Sonic and, pause, also bonk. <laughs> and consults paper, also bonk. Bonk. Kids, like Kids bonk. love bonk, right? <laughs> God. Anyway, uh, E3, definitely the black sheep in the series. Uh, the series would revert back to the top-down view after E3. And when it was later remade into Oath and Felgana, which, by the way, Oath and Felgana is, is considered as one of the best Ease games, actually. Has a much expanded yes, storyline, great soundtrack, uh, tr- more traditional viewpoint, good dungeons. Yes. Like, everybody loves Oath and Felgana. Don't like yeah, E3. Yeah, I would... Yeah, no, it is actually a, a huge jump over the original. Um, Oath and Falgana is, uh, I recommend it. And it was, interestingly, the final entry from original programmer Masaya Hashimoto, who left to form Quintet, along with the composer, and some of the games that they ended up making, Actraiser, Illusion of Gaia. Yes. Yeah, so those are good games. God, uh, I, I love Quintet. I'll, I'll stay here and do a full episode on Quintet. I don't care. Like, I love... Act Razor, I love Illusion of Guy, I love Terradigma. Uh, anyone who knows me knows this. All right. And then after that, there was also Ease 4, which returned to the top-down perspective. But this one is really confusing, okay? So first yeah. of all, it's not a strict sequel. It takes place between Ease 2 and 3. And get this, there are two games in the Ease, uh, Ease 4 series. Actually, technically three, if you count the re- Vita remake, Memories of Celseda. Right, which I haven't played yet. But the two games were Mask of the Sun and Dawn of Ease, and they were made by two different companies that were not Falcom. It was actually outsourced. Uh, And the Dawn of Ease is generally considered to be the superior of the two with better uh, presentation, tighter combat, cleaner controls, and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But uh, Mask of the Sun also existed. (laughs) (laughs) Mask of the Sun was also there. Yes. So there are three Ease 4 games. And then, technically, multiple E3 games. They just keep remaking them. Uh, and then, a little later, E5 came out. I forget which console that was on. I'm sure we'll touch on it, but E5 is considered one of the worst games in the series. I don't even remember anything about it, which goes to show it was probably pretty bad. Anyway, looking at the rest of the PC Engine's RPG cut, uh, selection, I looked at a lot of kind of top 50 lists, top 100 lists of PC Engine games, and it was very rare to see an RPG on there. Like, it was all action yeah. games and shoot 'em ups So, so it goes. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious as to why, because RPGs were fully established by 1988. Mm-hmm. Right? They were definitely there. They were big time in Japan. Dragon Quest was a thing. Why weren't there more imitators of like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy and such on the PC Engine, Nadia? I don't know. Uh, I guess, as you say, part of it is probably a huge part of it. Actually, is probably Nintendo uh, saying no. And back then, it, you know, it was still Nintendo's game very much. So uh, you had, uh, you might have even had like enterprising uh, developers like uh, like Falcom who looked over there and said, "Hey, here's a pretty popular." a console that you know has no rpgs on it let's let's go make an rpg and uh they were pretty much the only ones because i guess they didn't care what nintendo thought uh but yeah um i think uh it's just maybe the gap in the technology was too weird uh nintendo's 
iron grip on everything, all of the above. Yeah, I think that when it came to console development, uh, there were the heavy hitters who were focusing mostly on the Famicom, and then the rest were probably focusing on the MSX and uh, right. the, the the home computing market that was still very strong in the 1980s, with the notable yeah. exception of Falcom. Again, yeah, because I guess by that point, it's like, well, why go to the Turbo Graphics uh, or PC Engine to make an RPG when the Famicom has very much established itself already as like... Uh, for simpler RPGs, and the the computer market is still very much there for more com- more complex RPGs. Well, one exception is a game called Tengai Makio. Okay, and this game this is a trilogy of RPGs, and it is noticeable notable for a few things. Nadia, it mm. is first of all the first Eastern RPG to be on a CD-ROM system. Oh, interesting. And it also sold 400,000 copies, making it extremely successful. That would be, for the time, that would be very successful. Yes, it was developed by Hudson Soft and the Red Company, Uh and created in part by Ouija Horoi, a.k.a. Hidoshi Adachi, a.k.a. P.H. Chada, who was also the creator of the Sakura Wars franchise. So, uh, basically, it follows the feats of the Fire Clan and their allies, as they fight the forces of evil, or who are trying to rule or destroy the land of Jipang, um, which is kind of like this weird fantasy world of feudal Japan. Uh, somebody described it as, it's charming because it's like somebody's trying to recreate Japan without actually really knowing much about what Japan is. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because the Dragon Quest series has a Jipang, literally. All of this is told, by the way, from the exaggerated point of view of a 19th century American sociologist named P.H. Chada, which, as I already oh mentioned, was a pseudonym for Ouija Hiroi. <laughs> That's great. But, uh, yes, there were three games. Uh, the first one was on the PC Engine, came out in 1989, and was actually remade in 2006 for the Xbox 360. Really? Yeah, which is funny because the 360, like, was, you know, not exactly a popular console. <laughs> They tried. God, they tried though, didn't they? Because that's a, that. It seems like that'd be an enticing game for people to to pick up an Xbox for in Japan, but uh, apparently not. Apparently, Gaijin Works, which was formerly Working Designs, they mm-hmm. worked with Hudson USA and almost had an English release that was slated for oh. two thousand and nine, but Microsoft rejected it. Oh, that's too bad. Yep. And a fan translation is apparently underway of the PC Engine version, but I have not checked, but I don't think it is done. Mm, good old fan translations. So the next two, uh, the next one came out on PC Engine as well. It was eventually remade for the PlayStation 2 and the GameCube, and also there was an enhanced port of the original game for the Nintendo DS. I don't think wow. it was ever localized, um, unfortunately, though some people were trying extremely hard. Uh, eventually, right. the plans to publish it here were dropped. And then also there's a PS2 version that came out in 2005 called Tengai Makio 3, which was having a lot of the tr- a lot of problems, apparently. It was, quote-unquote, under development hell for 10 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's a real chunk of development hell right there. Yeah, it went over budget. Assets got lost. Yeah, it wasn't great. Wow. Eventually, the scenario writers published a novel with the plot of the original concept with changed names. Oh, wow. Oh, so they, they did the, the filing the serial numbers off thing. I love it. And then a new game bearing the same name and rough present premise, but done from scratch, having little to do with the original, was developed and released for the PS2. 
GameCube version was planned, but ultimately canceled as well. So there you go. Wow, talk about a saga in itself. Yeah, Konami USA tried to put it out in 2005, even put out, uh, but eventually pulled the listings along with Buktai 3 after the game's Japanese release was delayed repeatedly. Ah, poor Buktai. Yep. So there were a bunch of side stories as well, one for the Super Famicom, one for the PC Engine, one for the Saturn, uh, Tengai Makio Mm -hmm. 4, The Apocalypse. (laughs) Oh boy, that sounds very apocalypsy. The first game not... This was the first game not set in the far east of Eden Universe. It was actually set in America. Oh, ooh, interesting. Yes. Was it like someone trying to tell a story like <laughs> without visiting America? There are also fighting games, interestingly enough. So this is a big franchise. Yeah, no kidding. But it's not one I've heard much about yeah, until it's now. Virtually unknown in North America. Yeah, holy crap. It's, it's surprising to think there are still series like that. Sometimes I forget that, that there there are still a lot of series that we just know nothing about because, but they were like hugely popular in Japan. Yes, it was, uh, everybody knows it as Far East of Eden, which is a fun name. And yeah, it's basically like Dragon Quest is what you need to know, but simpler. Yeah, much simpler. How do you get simpler than Dragon Quest, not to rag on Dragon Quest? Oh, it has things like the battle system isn't as complex. You're not going to have as many buffs. You're going to, characters can't Ah, miss one another, that kind of thing. I gotcha. Some other games, a lot of them were from Falcom. For example, Legend of Xanadu 1 and 2. Now, this is another confusing one, Nadia. Okay? <laughs> so, this console is good at confusing. There is the Dragon Slayer, which was yes. a seminal game from Falcom. Like, hugely important because so many games sprung from it. And there were tons, including the, tale, the Trails uh, series, or Legend of Heroes yes. series, I should say. But And, and then, of course, Xanadu was the sequel, which gave rise to Fax Xanadu. Okay. Right. And then there was Legend of Xanadu 1 and 2, which was technically related to Xanadu, but not of Xanadu. It had nothing to do with this Xanadu. Is a, it's just such a, a, a Falcom thing, what we're doing here, because it's like, yes, I knew that Trails was vaguely related to Dragon Slayer, which is a very, very old series, but it's like, it is related and yet not related, and yet it can go on forever. Uh, but I think this is technically like the eighth game in the Dragon Slayer series, so it's not confusing at all. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm I'm cool. Is this on the test? Yes. Uh, I think this was another game that was designed, developed by Hudson, by the way. Uh, mm. And it's similar to Ease in that it has the bump into the bad guys combat. <laughs> oh, boy. That, that sure did have legs, didn't it? The whole bang into the bad guys thing. Sure did. But a few other games, Emerald Dragon, it's kind of like Ease and Shining Force, Friendship of a Human and a Dragon. It has some nice anime cutscenes. Oh, that's kind of cute. I actually, I actually saw the the cutscenes. They look pretty. They have, like I said, that very charming uh, PC Engine style to them, which is uh, they show like this dragon dissolving, and like even though it's only a few frames of animation, it's pretty graphic. Yeah, I was looking into the kind of doing some research into it. I think there was a Kickstarter to remake it or some to, something to that degree. It has a little bit of a cult audience. Oh, cool. Did I guess the Kickstarter wasn't successful. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the not uh, the not generic at all, Dungeons Explorer 2. Oh, that's uh, that's really compelling. That would be something I'd grab right off the shelf. And the extremely obscure but somewhat prolific Zack, which ultimately got to at least three versions, uh, and several of them were on the PC Engine. I don't know much more about it, except that it's an action RPG series. Yeah, it's spelled like X-A-K, and I know that because when I looked it up, I got 
an entry for Zaxaroth, which is a Dragonlance thing. All right, Nadia. So let's just take a look. What would you consider to be the RPG legacy of the PC Engine? Uh, Ease. And games <laughs> like Ease. <Well>, Falcom, <laughs> right? Falcom, definitely Falcom. They they ruled the roost and they, they had the whole pie to themselves and they were quite happy with it. Yeah, but also, I mean, I don't think you can discount Far East of Eden, which was no. ultimately very successful, especially the first one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even though we were not talking about a lot of games here, we are talking about a couple of very impactful games slash series. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Sega Genesis, uh, Sega CD in some respects. A lot of the yes. games that were also on the Sega CD, like Popful Mail, Ease, uh, were also here. Yeah, they did have a lot of kind of a uh, cross-cultural thing going on there where uh, both systems had uh, had the games, or shared games, rather. So, yeah, it's um, it, it's kind of like the the system that I, I wanted was kind of interested in because I was just so into RPGs and I had, like, eaten everything I could that Square Enix had to offer that I was just like, hey, give me whatever you can. Oh, wow, this has anime cutscenes. It must be so cool. I will say this. I like the Turbo Graphics. Do you? Yes, but mostly because it's a shoot 'em up system, and I like shoot 'em ups. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, I don't like first person shooters, but I like shooters. <laughs> the good kind. <laughs> you like shooting things, but not those kinds of shooting things. Exactly. I like the. I like a good top down or side to side shoot 'em up. I find them very relaxing. I downloaded the Konami Arcade Classics just recently just because I wanted oh. to be able to play Gradius and such. I've got like a uh-huh. million versions of Gradius on my on my uh, Switch at this point. Right, yeah. So now it's your Gradius machine. By the way, Nadia, this, this episode is timely because uh, not too long ago, Konami announced a TurboGrafx Mini. Uh, I am actually said that I am quite interested in that if we get some of these RPGs we've been talking about, well, uh, it, which I don't think we will. Well, actually, it has two RPGs, Nadia. Oh. Yes, the first six games were announced, and they include R-Type, Ease Book 1 and 2, New Adventure Island, Ninja Spirit, Alien Crush, and the aforementioned Dungeon Explorer. <laughs> so we're not even getting, like, East of Eden or anything like that. We're getting, um, e- okay, East Book 1 and 2, whatever. I can I can take her or leave it. I think the remakes we've had since are far, far better. But whatever. Yeah, I, I can appreciate game history. Uh, Dungeon Explorer. It sounds like, I don't know, maybe it's great. Maybe, maybe I'll have a great time. I don't know. Our readers are so going to chastise us. How can you not know anything about Dungeon Explorer? Somebody's flipping the table <laughs> I know as we speak. I know you explore dungeons. By the, by the sounds of it, I can verify that you explore many dungeons. <laughs> uh, Japan, by the way, has the advan- advantage. They get Dracula X. Oh, wow. They get, like, they're just like starting off with a bang there, aren't they? Yeah. If they don't put Dracula X in this thing, I'm going to flip some tables. I have a hard time believing they won't, but who knows? I may buy a PC. I might, I might buy the TurboGrafx Mini, though, just because unlike the NES Classic and the SNES Classic and the PlayStation and the Sega Genesis Mini, I can get, I can't get most of those games that are being listed on the TurboGrafx Mini that easily. No, that's a good point. Uh, a lot of them are basically parked on that little system, and that's all you're getting. I would ask for a Neo Geo Mini, but I already got one. It's called the Switch. Yeah, they kind of just went ahead and said, here's all our games on the Switch. Enjoy, didn't they? 
All right, that's a wrap for our latest entry in the console RPG quest, the Turbo Graphics 16 slash PC Engine. Do you want, do you have any memories of the PC Engine? Did you play any of the RPGs we were talking about? Did we miss anything? Leave us a comment on the show notes or send me a DM on Twitter at the underscore catbot or mail me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. All right, let's continue on to the mailbag. Okay, Nadia, last time on Axe of the Blood God, we talked a little bit about the Pokemon kerfuffle in which I admitted mm. to losing my mind on Twitter. <laughs> yes, you, you lost your mind just a little bit, but I think you were allowed, all things considered. Somebody was asking, was like, oh, how did you lose your mind on Twitter, Kat? It's like, well, here's how I lost my mind on Twitter. I was really getting into arguments with people and also having long heated threads about why I was so upset about this. Right, and it was also it probably didn't help that it was E three as well and everyone was just kinda tired and angry. Yes, I was I was definitely that person who was standing on top of a soapbox waving her arms like a crazy person going, They're <laughs> limiting the Pokedex. Don't you understand? Don't you understand why this matters? This is terrible and people are going, Okay, Right, you're like the, the the kind of person where you know you're walking down the street and you're you, you see mothers just kind of take their kids and scuttle past you. Yes, no, no, that's exactly it. And it's this gigantic scandal in Pokemon, the Pokemon community, and I'm not actually sure oh, that most people really know like what a big deal it is. Yeah, um, I can only imagine how Smogon must be losing its freaking mind. Freaking mind! The Pokemon Showdown will have all of the Pokemon, so. There you go. Just play online. But, okay, so here's some questions from the mailbag. Uh, Heaterhand says, I appreciated the discussion regarding the Pokemon transfer kerfuffle. I admit I struggled to see what the fuss was all about. But your conversation made me realize that a big part of why I had problems regarding the, relating to the uproar was how immense this franchise actually is and how mm-hmm. wide a tent it's become over the years. While some series, maybe most, naturally acquire a rather homogenous group of fans, at least in terms of what they want from their games, Pokemon is so many things to so many people that its fan base inevitably is going to include perspectives completely foreign to your own. Also, I would have loved to have heard more of the crazy cat from Twitter hinted at the, in the episode description. See also your amazing Fire Emblem rant from a few weeks back. That was the <laughs> one where I was complaining viciously about how it's become uh anime waifu game but waifu simulator the way uh, waifu emblem the way in which you laid out your (laughs) perspective on the issue was well considered and dare i say it edifying i'm way too reasonable nadia i just want to be mad sometimes why do i gotta be reasonable and see all sides well you are i mean you'd better be reasonable you're editor-in-chief nah i want to be crazy it's more fun to be crazy Sometimes it is fun to just kind of let go. So Darren Castro is on my side. Full disclosure, Darren is a friend of mine. He sent, laid out a very impassioned uh, DM, <laughs> of which I will lay a, read part of it here. Uh, laying out why longtime players are upset about losing the continuity and completeness of not only their collection, but their entire adventure is something that needs to be said. My oldest childhood friend traded me a shiny Nidorino he got in Fire Red's Safari Zone. Catching a shiny in the Safari Zone, incredible luck. For a gift, because he knew Nidoking is my favorite Pokemon. He is my oldest friend, the first friend I ever came out to, and we both love Pokemon and see the franchise as a way to catalog not only our in-game adventures, but the passage of time in our lives. 
I too saw each gen's story as a long tutorial that I just need to quickly get through so I can bring all my companions gathered over the years back and actually have the bulk of my fun. Thanks for articulating what so many of us are feeling, Kat. See, people like these Pokemon, they have connections. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I feel bad because my uh, my first gen Pokemon are still in their cartridge saying, help, let us out, let us out. No, the battery's dead, so they're probably all gone now. Oh no, now they're dead. Now they're really you, dead. You murdered them, Nadia. <laughs> my poor Charizard. Hal Johnson says, I found myself playing a lot of Final Fantasy Explorers later lately, and I was wondering if you or Nadia had any hot takes on it. I know that when it launched, the comparison to Monster Hunter was pretty pervasive, and it got mediocre reviews across the board. My first experience with the game was similarly meh, but over the time, the game grew on me. I think the turning point was when a diehard member of the FFE community, there is one, reframed the game by saying people compare Final Fantasy Explorers to Monster Hunter and it always comes out behind that. It isn't a Monster Hunter, though. It's a fantasy star online. I immediately picked the game back up and approached it as an action MMO with definite cooldowns, AoEs, and the ability cycles, and everything clicked. Even the magic rolls, which I had found really frustrating, suddenly felt better. In any case, I was just curious to hear if you ever had to ever had a similar experience, either the Final Fantasy Explorers or another title. Now that gaming has its own legacy, it seems impossible to explain to a person what a game is without referencing similar similar, i.e. the new Spider-Man is infamous, but was Spider-Man? <laughs> yes. Sometimes I worry that finding the immediate comparison sets some games up to fail. Final Fantasy Explorers might be a crappy take on Monster Hunter, but as my play clock creeps up, I found it to be a fun time in its own right. Well, Nadia, uh, we actually talked about Final Fantasy Explorers in the January 2016 episode of Acts of the Blood God, and I looked back yeah. on my old writings on it, and yes, I mostly talked about it in comparison to Monster Hunter. <laughs> yeah, I think Parrish did as well. I think it was kind of inevitable, because, I mean... That was just another example of Square frantically trying to jump on the Monster Hunter bandwagon at the time because Monster Hunter was so dang popular and it just made sense that instead of fighting, you know, big dragons and whatnot, you were fighting behemoths. Yeah, and I uh, I never played Explorers. I remember I was kind of looking forward to it, but then it, the reviews came out and I said, eh, I guess I'll give it a pass. But I feel like even though it isn't, you know, uh, supposedly not uh, Final Fantasy meets Monster Hunter, I feel like it's probably doing itself a disservice by not being Final Fantasy and Monster Hunter because uh, I think that formula could work really well. I mean, look at, you know, Anthem could have just been Destiny with flying and they tried so hard to make it something else, but it wasn't. How's this? Final Fantasy Explorers 2 on Nintendo Switch with actual good graphics. Sure, I'll play it. Yeah, give me, a, just make sure it's, it's fun to play. You have that sort of really fun feedback loop you have with the Monster Hunter games and, uh, you know, make tracking the monsters fun. And yeah, I love the idea of like four people just getting together and being the hell out of a behemoth. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy fourteen has shown that co-op Final Fantasy can work very well. And it is a very oh, flexible concept yeah. with all of its job classes and such. Yeah, there's just so much to work with the Final Fantasy series. Like, don't hold back, Square Enix. Come on. Can you think of a game that has been kind of done a disservice because of constant comparisons to something else? I'm sure that there are plenty. There's got to be plenty, but like, I... It's just one of those on-the-spot things where I can't think of anything. <laughs> you know, Alpha Protocol was delisted from Steam recently. And right. I think a lot of people would point to that game as kind of a... I think the words flawed masterpiece are used a lot in relation to that game. Yes, and I've heard it. the comparisons to games like Mass Effect and... Yeah, definitely Mass Effect is a big one. Uh, were constant, 
but I, maybe people didn't take that one on its own merits. Right. Yeah. See, that's probably a good example. Okay. Gamer Law says, finally, the E3 trailer and subsequent Treehouse presentation addressed a number of my fears regarding three houses and really raised my hype level for next month's release. More than anything, I wanted to see in-game combat footage and came away impressed by what I was shown. The influence of previous entries like Radiant Dawn and the maps was clear and welcome. Learning that school simmed aspects are not a primary focus of the entire game gives me hope that we are in for a top-tier installment in the Fire Emblem canon. Okay, well, Gamer Law is as hardcore and old-school Fire Emblem fan as he can get, so, and we may be, if they're happy, then we may be in for something good, Nadia. Yeah, so uh, hold out hope, Cat. It might not be all waifus in school after all. Yeah, well, Eric, uh, who is also a Fire Emblem fan, but he his favorite is Awakening, Boo Hiss. Um, <laughs> he really enjoyed Three Houses as well, so it may end up being the rare crowd pleaser. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can't believe it's next month already. We're, we're getting to that point, but yeah, I am very much looking forward to it. Yeah, it was in our top 10 for E3, which you should go check out. Okay, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. As I mentioned before, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And if you want to reach us, send me an email at cat.baileyusgamer.net. Leave a comment or whatever. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. All right, we're headed firmly into the dead period of the year, but we still got a lot more to talk about. We will continue my playthrough of Final Fantasy VII. We may have a fuller review of Bloodstained once Nadia has that up. And of course, we're going to continue our console RPG quest, and we will hit on all of the other subjects as well. Okay, Nadia, thanks for being willing to stay a lot later than your usual stop time today. No problem. And, Sun is setting. Yeah, and we will continue on right into the summer and right into Fire Emblem Three Houses. But until then, for Nani and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring.